This morning, what I'd like to share with you are some reflections about, you could say, preparing the ground uh, for our retreat, preparing the foundation of our retreat around this topic of emptiness. And there are uh, two domains that I want to uh, share reflections with you. One is this quality of honoring and also uh, exploring more together just the quality of settling in, which is so important as we uh, begin retreat together. And what I'd like to begin with is uh, actually the beginning of a very important text around this theme of emptiness. And the, the Sanskrit word is mula mudyamaka karika. And you'll see in your study guide, if you look in your study guide here, um, I'm not going to be going over this, uh, this quote, but uh, it's a work by Nagarjuna. So you'll see for the second quote here on the first page, it's by uh, Nagarjuna, the mula mudyamaka karika. And just to be really clear, mula in Sanskrit means root or foundation. Um, Madhyamaka is relating to the middle. Here it's uh, uh, the middle way, just translated as middle way. And then karika is usually like a collection of texts or verses. So it's uh, translated a lot of times something like these verses that are on the, the foundations of the middle way. So these, these, um, uh, this writing that explains to us uh, the foundation of this path that we're on. And it was written by Nagarjuna, who was an Indian practitioner living somewhere around the second or third century of the, the common era. And I want to point out that uh, Nagarjuna is probably one of the most influential writers that we find in, in all of Buddhism. Just this one work, the Mula Madhyama Kakarika, uh, deeply influenced um, so much of the, the Buddhism that we find in Tibet and China, Korea, Japan. And not only influencing Buddhism, but influencing so much of literature and art. For example, in... In Korea, one of the, you could say, classic works of literature in Korea was this novel in the 18th century, which was based on uh, Nagarjuna's teachings on emptiness. Even modern art, I heard that there was some modern artist that was using this, this sense of emptiness from Nagarjuna to influence um, artistic expression. And it's uh, not only that, but I think maybe my colleagues would agree with me on this. We'll have to see. But many people in the world of Theravada or the world of early Buddhism see Nagarjuna as uh, simply a commentator on early Buddhism. He, his, his, his notions and his ideas and the way he explains emptiness fits so well with uh, what we find in early Buddhism and really held in high esteem. If you, you find practitioners like the... Venerable Nyanananda, who wrote these Nibbana sermons, or Bhikkhu Sujato, or others that really see how well his, his ideas fit into early Buddhism. And you'll see this, uh, the way we explain him and how we interrelate what he's sharing with these, these early suttas. 
And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you just the very beginning of these fundamental verses on the middle way. And to remember, this, this whole text is simply about emptiness. But where he begins, I find very striking. And where he begins is with a dedication. So he begins by saying, I pay homage. I pay homage to the perfect Buddha, the best of teachers, who taught that whatever is dependently arisen is unceasing, unborn, unannihilated, not permanent, not coming, not going, without distinction, without identity, and free from conceptual construction. So here he begins the exploration of emptiness with an honoring, an honoring of the Buddha. The word honoring is, comes from this uh, Sanskrit word vande, which, which can be to pay homage to, to celebrate, to honor, to bow down to. This, this word, the Sanskrit word, encaptures all of these qualities. And when I read this and when I was exposed to this work, I, I reflected on just the importance of beginning an exploration into emptiness with this quality, this heartfelt quality of honoring. And what, what honoring does for me, and especially my heart, is that I, I, it situates me in this position, this feeling sense of actually graciously receiving and honoring through, you could say, acknowledging that what we're exploring comes from an entire tradition that was formed through numerous practitioners that come before us, going through so many different cultures, and to graciously receive, to honor what's come before us. And, and I like to point this out because I think sometimes, I know this can be for me, just being situated in a consumeristic culture, there can be this quality of mind that can just happen so qu uh, quickly of just kind of brazenly taking something, just like it's another thing to be consumed. And so much of this, which I want to also uh, name, it's, it's, you could say it's, it, it's, it's what can lead this tricky line of honoring and respecting to kind of brazenly appropriating or taking in a really unskillful way where we're not respecting where things come from. And you might notice it, it makes a difference for our hearts to do that. And it also acknowledges this, this world of multiplicity and of tradition that this comes through rather than a merely taking that we unfortunately might have learned from a consumeristic world. I remember when I was a Zen monk in the, actually in the early morning and then also in the afternoon of our regular daily life, we would do uh, usually about 45 minutes of chanting. And some of that chanting involved the whole lineage of ancestors of teachers that came before us. And of course, the, the, so the story goes, it was the lineage all the way back to uh, the historical Buddha himself. And to me, what it reminded me of is really honoring all the practitioners, this whole tradition that was lifting me up and giving me something in some kind of manner. 
It's quite beautiful these days, uh, for example, in Soto Zen, they've added something which I think is really quite striking is the whole lineage of women practitioners as well. So they not only chant the the ancestors in terms of the men, but the women, you know, as, which is so important given the the shadow side of the history of Buddhism and the, the patriarchy that's there of just honoring also the unseen practitioners, which is, is uh, essential. And it, when I honor in this way, as a way of beginning a retreat or beginning exploration, it allows me to come from this place of gratitude, of humility, of, of open-heartedness. And I wanna say that these qualities are so important for this exploration of, of emptiness, especially for me around emptiness, the humility of approaching these. These are such profound teachings. And I feel so grateful for what's been given me. And you might hear some of this heartfelt quality in this first um, quote here. So if you look in your study guide under the heading uh, Samadhi, this comes from another work by Nagarjuna, where he had written these hymns to the ultimate, expressing this devotion, but in a very interesting way, now entering into kind of this... this um, non-conceptual world of emptiness, or at least acknowledging it. And so he begins with this, this question, how shall, how shall I praise you, the protector unborn, without foundation, who has passed beyond all comparison with the world, whose domain is beyond the path of speech, Nevertheless, whatever you may be in the domain of the true reality, I, having resorted to the world of conventional designations, shall praise the master out of devotion. Something so profound that we're given a chance to begin to touch the Buddha or this realm that's without foundation, that's unborn, beyond the path of speech. To taste that, to taste the ultimate. And yet, and yet at the same time, the willingness to go into this conventional world and to have also this turning of the heart of honoring in some way. Even, even if what we're honoring is beyond concepts beyond speech. And this hymn uh, reminds me again, the, the importance of getting my heart involved within this path of practice. So that what we're exploring here is not just some kind of dry intellectual exercise around emptiness, but something that has more depth to it for our lives. Remember, I, I practicing with a Tibetan teacher that I think uh, some of my colleagues have, I think all of my colleagues have practiced with as well as is uh, this uh, Tibetan teacher, uh, the Venerable Sokni Rinpoche. And sometimes the comment he would give to one's practice is, oh, your practice is too dry. It needs to be juicy. There needs to be some heart quality there. 
found that helpful. So, so I, I want to leave you more with a question around this honoring is, how do you honor this path and all of those who brought it to you? And I want to point out, you know, that can take so many different forms. It could just be just an intention in the mind or heart, or it could be through the chanting that we'll be doing uh, in the evenings. Or it could be through bowing, you know, whatever works for you in terms of that. But how do you do that for yourself? And also the question, how do you keep in contact with some kind of heart connection with this path to make it uh, something with depth? And then this second piece that I want to spend actually more time with, which is uh, the quality of settling in, which is so important in terms of uh, retreat practice, which I think probably most of you know. But also to take a little bit of time to intertwine it with one understanding, one way of understanding emptiness, or you could even say emptying, which we'll get to. But first I want to talk about settling in and then connect it with this topic of, of emptiness. And I'd like to begin with this uh, second quote here that we have under this heading of Samadhi in your study guide there. So you might want to take a look at that. This comes from the uh, middle length discourses. And to me, one way I understand this story that I'm going to read through right now is here's the Buddha's own journey trying to figure out a good way to settle in. So let's see what he comes up with at first. So he says, I thought, I thought, suppose I were to take only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, vetch soup, or pea soup. So I took only a little food at a time only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, vetch soup, or pea soup. My body became extremely emaciated. Simply from my eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. stems. My backside became like a camel's hoof. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old rundown barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets, like the gleam of water deep in a well. My scalp shriveled and withered like a green bitter gourd, shriveled and withered in the heat and the wind. The skin of my belly became so stuck to my spine that when I thought of touching my belly, I grabbed hold of my spine as well. And when I thought of touching my spine, I grabbed hold of the skin of my belly as well. If I urinated or defecated, I fell over on my face right there, simply from eating so little. If I tried to ease my body by rubbing my lips with my hands, the hair rotted at its roots, fell from my body as I rubbed, simply from eating so little. So what is he referring to here? He's referring to these austerity practices that he engaged in before finding 
the middle way. And I, I want to point out, probably there isn't many people who can relate to this kind of practice. Maybe there is, but <laughs> I'm going to assume that. But I do want to point out what I, f- I found in myself and in others, that there's such a common modern austerity that people engage in around practice that I find so interesting. And in some ways, so harmful in this way, that actually leads to this lack of nourishment in our lives and really in our bodies. And it's this austerity practice of being so judgmental and so hard on ourselves. It's amazing, like we spend all day, you know, outside retreat and then voila, we come with that same kind of austerity practice here. Where there can be this this real tightness that happens in the mind and body, even around meditation. And the kind of, the explicit way is, I'm no good at this. I really can't do this. This isn't for me but also comes with this tightness a lot of times is then when we're feeling good at doing it, it's like, oh, I'm so great at this. But it's really the same austerity practice because there's a a rigidity in the heart and mind rather than an ease and a gentleness. It's the self-hate, the self-criticism, being so critical of ourselves and then branches out into being critical of others. And to remember, this is just as the Buddha needed, this is our practice, is to renounce that, to let go of that extreme way of practice. Not to have that kind of quality. And the other thing that I want to point out too, which I think happens, that's connected with this, is sometimes there is a kind of forcing of our physiology into getting settled we're trying to make our bodies feel settled and collected and concentrated. And what the Buddha found was something different than this. So I want to come back to this because I think this is also a subtle aspect of austerity is I'm going to control my mind and body to get it to settle. So again, the sense of not nourishing ourselves. So I think there might be this way that we can relate to the unskillful ways that the Buddha approached practice. We have them too. They just end up being a modern form. And then he had this turning and this is, uh, it just comes a little bit later on in the same discourse. It's the third uh, quote here that you'll see just below the one that I just read. And then there's this turning in his practice where he has this memory, he remembers something. I thought, I recall once, you know, I had this memory that when my father, the Sakyan, was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, then quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from seclusion, accompanied by direct thought and evaluation. Could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization, that is the path to awakening, I thought. So why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, that has nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? 
I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. But that pleasure is not easy to achieve with a body so extremely emaciated. Suppose I were to take some solid food, some rice and porridge. So I took some solid food, some rice and porridge. Now the five monks had been intending on me, thinking, if Gotama or Kent contemplative achieves some higher state, he will tell us. But when they saw me taking some solid food, some rice and porridge, they were disgusted and left me thinking, Gotama the contemplative is living luxuriously. He has abandoned his exertion, exertion and is now backsliding into abundance. So I want to uh, uh, point out some things about this story, which I think is uh, really quite important. Is, right, he's, he's young, he has this memory of being underneath a rose apple tree. And to remember the contrast here, right? His father's out working in the fields. He's not working. So this is important. <laughs> I have the willingness to be present. I have the willingness to show up for my experience moment after moment after moment, which does take a kind of effort, but it feels different than working out in the fields. It feels more like hanging out underneath a rose apple tree. So quality of relaxation is so important with this quality of settling in while you're here on retreat. Yes, continuity, moment after moment after moment while you're here on, on retreat. You'd say no breaks from our willingness to be present. But with so much ease, underneath the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And then what happened is he enters this state of samadhi, and I'll talk about samadhi, the mind being collected, the mind being concentrated in a way that we can taste here on retreat, on a shorter retreat like this. He was also in a natural environment. You might find when you're doing the walking meditation outside that sometimes the natural environment allows our physiology to settle. The beauty of a place like IMS here, the sounds of the birds. What quality does that bring to the heart and mind when you allow that in? the kind of the natural environment in that. And then his, his big realization, oh, pleasure. Wow, pleasure's a really good thing <coughs> when it's not connected with unskillful qualities of mind. This is actually the way, this is a way of pleasure. And this, this, and this goes on to the, the next quote here that we say, we see the fourth one in your study guide there. And he, and he goes even further. I said, I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated and that it should not be feared. So it was with reference to this that it was said, one should know how to define pleasure and know, knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself. 
So it's important to see here, the Buddha was all about having a good time. That's, that's what he was trying to say to his five friends. Like, hey, what's up with the austerities? Let's have a good time here in this really skillful way. Of course, they were bummed out about that. So what I'm inviting you to do today to begin to settle in just following the Buddha's words is what is it like to open to pleasure, to be with pleasure in a skillful way, not grasping onto it, but for example, in the breath, feeling the pleasure, any kind of pleasant sensations that are associated, associated with the breath. Or as walking meditation, the pleasure of feeling the body moving. Or just the pleasure of being here at IMS. To actually soak that in, to take that in in some kind of manner. To deeply savor. And of course, I do want to point out that you have very little control if your experience is going to be pleasurable or not. You just might have a really unpleasant day today. And it's because you're not in control of your experience. So I do want to name that so you don't get to choose. But if it is pleasurable or neutral, to savor that. And if it's not, then you just are being with it. So it's really important to remember that, that we're not in control. We can influence, and this is how we influence, is if pleasure's there opening to it, if there's neutrality settling into that. And if, it's, if your experience is unpleasant, then it's being with that because that's what's given to you. And there is a physiological importance to this as well. That as I was pointing out last night, what's so important for my system to settle in is to feel safe. Because when I feel safe, my, literally my physiology is in a completely different place. It's not, it's not being run by these programs of fight, flight, or freeze. My system's actually here in this moment. And often what we're doing when we pay attention to pleasure is it's, you could say it's front-loading our physiology to feel safe, to actually settle in. And there's a good reason for this. So for example, if I'm being chased by a mountain lion, the last thing that my system is interested in is pleasure <laughs> for a really good reason because it wants to, to, to survive that situation. So it's trying to get away in some kind of manner. So what shuts down is this opening to pleasure. So if you front load the system and, 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 and kind of uh, coax it into being uh, opening to pleasure, then it takes us out of these kind of these, these physiological responses. And I want to point out, just given the mammals that we're in, thrown into this weird modern world that we live in, is that even when a, mo a mountain lion is not chasing us, there can still be these, these, these activation of this fight, flight, and freeze. Often for modern physiology, those, those qualities of activation are going on for much of the time. You know, where there's a subtle worry or a subtle agitation that's going on in the system where we don't feel quite safe. So I just want to point out that we have so many mountain lions running around in our head <laughs> that we need to allow for this. So this is important in terms of physiology and even more important living in this modern world.
And I do want to give a call out to maybe some of you that might have been like me for so many years, which is the leeriness of this around this this teaching of pleasure. And what's up with this all this talk of pleasure? This isn't this isn't California, this is IMS, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and I want to point out that it can be tricky to really open to pleasure in a skillful way, to wholesome pleasure, to the feeling of the breath or in the walking meditation. It can be tricky. There can be a conditioning that this is not a good thing to do. There's a poet, Alison Luterman, who, she, she puts it so well in this poem. Just the first line, she says, I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. So yeah, it can be difficult to open the pleasure. I'm, I'm scared to. What's going to happen? And here she gives the key to this in the last line. Just this moment, to want what I have, to have a quality of contentment with this moment. Wow, that's, that's the pleasure the Buddha, I think, is speaking about. That's the way to really have a good time. And what does this lead to? What is this all leading to? These these different pieces around pleasure, around ease, stepping out of out of those habitual austerity practices that your mind engages in that actually starve you. And this leads to this important quality of the heart and mind for beginning retreat that we nurture is this quality of samadhi. It's usually translated as concentration, which is such a bad translation. <laughs> but I'll probably use it again and again and again. <laughs> Samadhi is this, it's, it's, it really, it comes from this, the, the Pali word, it comes from the word uh, uh, samadati, which, which means to collect or to put together. It's, it's the mind collecting around an experience. And it's a mind that's going towards this collecting or unifying. And the example I like to give is this image that's happening right now is the image of all of us in this room and all of our attention is collected around, for example, me speaking, the sound of my voice. And it's the sense of like here, all of you have come from different places in the in IMS and now we've all gathered together, we've collected together and unified around the one experience of the sound of my voice coming and going. That's this quality, you could say, of collectedness. This is what happens with, with the mind around an experience, is it collects around one experience, whether it be the breath or a sound or a sensation or even a sight. All the parts of the mind are now just hanging out with that one experience, even if it's a changing experience. 
And just to follow on this analogy a little bit, it could be that we're here all in this room and everybody's paying attention to the sound of my voice coming and going, but maybe there's five or six people in the back corner having their own conversation. You could say that for the most part, the room is still collected around the sound of my voice. You know, maybe there's 10 people having their own conversation. So that's kind of happening in the background. Maybe there's another conversation here, but it's still generally collected. Now, if all of you were having your own conversations and there was just one or two of you with this, you know, paying attention to the sound of my voice, we would say there wouldn't be much samadhi in this mind of this room. And I point this out that what you might find on retreat, and this is going to come and go, it's so kind of fragile and fluid samadhi, is that there's going to be times where it feels like, well, maybe, maybe most of the room is, is on the breath. Maybe a third of it is, and that's still samadhi. There still might be thoughts going on in the background of the mind, but there's a, a way of paying attention to a sensation or a sound where it's relatively collected. And then other times where it's like nobody in the room is paying attention to the sound of the voice. Oh, not much samadhi. And when you notice this, again, it's, it's not to go into the world of judgment. You have so little control over this. It's unbelievable, but you can influence it. So there's one way of, of tracking samadhi, of allowing it. It's just allowing this to happen. It's this whole spectrum from the whole mind being collected around an experience to maybe half the mind or a quarter of the mind being collected around experience, which is still a quality of samadhi. And what's so important around this is just the willingness, the willingness to be present with whatever experiences is showing up there. Because today, it's the first day, right? It might be the day of sleepiness. Have you ever noticed that at the beginning of the tree? Sleepy, achy body. What am I doing here? I can't do this. Uh That's okay. It's just a willingness. And being okay that that's, that's the way where the mind is. I like to liken it to trying to grow vegetables where I live, Flagstaff, Arizona. You know, you put so much work, you plant the seeds, you water, sun, and then like just two nights ago, it got below freezing. Our poor little squash plants, you know. But I can't control the weather. And sometimes it's like that, especially at the beginning, right? In the spring, you're just going to have days like that. Especially at the very beginning. Everything's so tender. And this is why it's important to remember not to engage in the austerity practice. It's just this gentleness around the sleepiness or the achiness. And the sleepiness is actually a sign of settling in. The mind has started to settle. It started to arrive here. It just kind of ends up in the basement of sleepiness rather than <laughs> being present. You just, need to allow, you just need to catch the elevator. It'll probably happen tomorrow. Just coming up to the first floor of being present. But to notice that there is a little bit of a settling, just so an ease. And I do want to point out the kind of samadhi that we're going to be cultivating kind of intermix with what we're doing. And it might be different for many of you. If you have a way of cultivating samadhi that's, that's helped for you on past retreats, feel free to engage in that. But often on these retreats, we're cultivating a, a quality of uh, samadhi that is called kanika samadhi. This is a phrase that comes from 
uh, more from the commentaries than from the the Pali Nikayas, which is a momentary concentration or momentary unification. So what this means is that uh, there can be a, a paying attention to the feeling of the breathing, the mind gets pulled away into sound, and then it's just being with the activity of sound for a little while, where it collects around sound. There's a coming back to the breath. It gets pulled into a sensation, and then you allow the mind to collect around that sensation for a little bit. Then you bring it back to the breath. The mind gets lost in thought, and then there's the moment when you notice thought has happened. Well, there's a moment of the mind collecting around that, and then coming back to the breath. So in this way, really, however you're, you're um, engaging in practice, there is going to be a, a cultivating of samadhi, even if it doesn't feel like it. Unless, of course, you're spending all day on your smartphone or reading books. <laughs> it's going to happen. Just with this willingness for a continuity of the practice. And, and I want to also acknowledge, this is, samadhi is not a goal in and of itself. It's, it's the tool we use to see clearly. That when the mind's just a little bit more settled, allows us to see the things we're going to be exploring more clearly. Now I'd like to take some time to connect this with uh, this term emptiness. This is, and I want to point out, this is just one way of understanding this term emptiness. Because you're going to find with what we're presenting to you that there's different ways of understanding this term. And what I want to point out is that what you're engaging in with this quality of settling in is a kind of practice of emptiness. It's a kind of, you could say, of emptying the mind in some kind of manner. Because often what happens is the mind, you could say, experiences a sensation or a sight or a sound, and then you'll, what you'll notice, right, is it scatters. There's kinds of a cascade of thoughts and feelings that can come out of that. It's like, you know, you experience something and then all of a sudden everybody in the back of the room starts to have their own conversation, right? It starts to scatter in that way. And what happens when we start to settle in is it's, there's a kind of emptying that happens. An emptying where there's a collecting that, that happens. And, and the Buddha speaks to this a little bit. And so let's see if we can explore one of these um, discourses on uh, emptiness. This is this next quote in, the, um, in your study guide is the shorter discourse on emptiness. It's uh, number five. And what I want to do with this, this discourse is I'm not going to get into all the details of this passage that I've given you, but I want to first tie in some of the, the aspects of this passage with what I've already shared with you to show that what you're doing fits into this practice of emptiness or this quality of emptying. And uh, to start to get a sense of this, this process of empty, emptying. Okay, so it begins, monastics who are dwelling in the forest, not attending to the perception of village or the perception of human beings, attend to the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. 
Their minds take pleasure, satisfaction, and settles in its perception of wilderness. So I just want to start here to explain a little bit this, how they're meditating or how the Buddha is encouraging practitioners to meditate. Not that we're going to engage in this in the same way, because really we're usually taking kind of an anchor like the breath or the activity of hearing. And this is a, a little bit different, but it's the same process. So this is going to be a different, you could say practice, but it's the same process that we're doing here. So the, you could say this not attending to the village or the perception of human beings, it's not attending to kind of one way of seeing perception, it's not a, attending to the, the images and the thoughts that are around what's going on in the village or with other human beings. And we're taking a focus of the mind that is less disturbing than that, that doesn't have, have as much kind of um, fabrication to it, which would be this perception of the wilderness, a single perception of the wilderness. So here they are, they're hanging out in the forest and it's imagining the forest as one entity. So maybe it's imagining all of the trees in the mind as one single experience. And so you'd take that imagination, that image, as the focus of your meditation. And then he gives these instructions that I just gave you around some kind of anchor in your, your meditation, which is to take pleasure and satisfaction in that object of your meditation. To settle into it in some kind of manner. So the object is different, but the process is the same of what we're talking about. And then there's the second piece that you might want to explore today. Then it's to discern, discern whatever disturbances that exist based on the perception of village are not present. Be disturbances based on the perception of human being are not present. There is only this modicum of disturbance, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. How to translate it into what we're doing today. Oh, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out and I can feel the breath for a few seconds. Ah, oh, nice. Well, there's hearing. Well, I'm, not, I'm no longer thinking about that problem at work anymore or what's going on at home. I'm actually here at IMS. Oh, and this is less disturbing. Oh, in the mind, it's empty of all those disturbances in my life just for a little while. There's still the kind of the water of, of the breath there but it's, it, it's at least a little emptier than that. It's empty of those disturbances. And when you drink in that quality of samadhi, then it even gets a little bit right emptier, which is great. <laughs> that nourishment. Okay, so let's, let's go on here. Let's see if I can f see where we are. And then they discern. They discern that this mode of perception is empty of the perception of village. This mode of perception is empty of the perception of human, humans. There is only this non-emptiness, this singleness based on the perception of wilderness. Thus they regard it as empty of whatever is not there. Whatever remains, they discern as present. Oh, there is this. And so this is their entry their entry into emptiness. So here what you're doing, this settling in, is this quality of entering into emptiness. 
the 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 Pali word for entry is actually avakanti, which means to descend down is one way of understanding this. That we start to descend down into this emptiness. An emptiness in this context is a mind that is not fabricating as much. There's still fabrications, but it's not living in the world as fabrication in the world of constructions and fabrications as much. This is the, the direction towards abiding in emptiness to this state, one understanding of, of emptiness. Which I wanna just come back to this. And this actually fits with the, the first words we got from the Garjana, this, this perfect Buddha who taught this this unceasing and the unborn, which is free from conceptual construction. And the word in Sanskrit was prapancha, which, which is papancha. When there's less papancha, when there's less scattering of the mind, one is closer to emptiness, you could say. So again, just a reminder for today to keep it simple, the sense of feeling the body and the breath, to bring the mind back again and again, with a lot of gentleness, not the austerity practice. Soaking in pleasure, opening to pleasure. And then also um, remembering you are so not in control of this. There's only so much, you know, the mind might be just a complete mess today and to be okay with that. And most importantly, see if you might wanna take on this practice. Enjoying what's not here. So, there's so many things that are not here that is so cool. <laughs> this makes me feel good to think about that. Like the news. <laughs> wow. Don't you feel good already? <laughs> ah. Well, that feels so good. So my mind might be racing, but it's not about the news. Wow, there's just like this like openness to this. This is the practice of emptiness around this. So I do want to uh, just open up um, just some time if there's any questions around this as a way of a beginning, whether it be about some of the texts. And I know I didn't get a lot uh, to a lot of this shorter discourse on emptiness, but I wanted to make sure to actually give you something to practice around emptiness. So any questions? And thanks, Guy. Oh yeah, so we're going to be using a mic just so everyone can hear your question. So if you just raise your hand, thank you for raising your hand, and then um, my fellow colleagues like this. Yes, uh, what is the Pali for pleasure that's being used here? Sukha. With the Sanskrit? Sukha. Sukha. Sukha in Pali, yeah, Sukha. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, and I just want to say it's, it's tricky because the word Sukha is, is, means something different in different co contexts. So sometimes it's in the context of Vedna, which we're talking about, which just means pleasant or pleasure. Other times, sukha is used in different contexts where it's meaning more around just general happiness. And then other co contexts, sukha is a, is a quality of, of is a mental state that arises with concentration that has a particular flavor to it. So the way I'm using it is just as this ge general term of pleasure in terms of that's the feeling tone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that 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 in that context. Uh -huh. Great. And, yeah. um, on the 
Number three, I was um, struck by the description of the first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born from seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. I wonder if you could spend a minute on that. I was going to, you know, I was thinking, maybe I should just, you know, if I wasn't reading it and you could all see, I would have changed those words. (laughs) So uh, the, the two words are vitaka and vichara, and there's a lot of controversy about this, but from from my own kind of feeling sense of this, those words mean, and again, it's contextual. The, the tricky thing about Pali is that these words slightly change in meaning depending upon the context that they're used in. So in some contexts, vitaka vichara, these two words, is really talking about thinking. So when the Buddha uses the word thinking and more thinking, he uses vitaka vichara. But what's so common with Pali is that these words can then change in meaning in this context. And in this context, it seems like, I feel like the commentaries were quite accurate in the sense that it has the quality of, of the mind aiming and sustaining. So vitaka would be your mind's ability to bring your eyes up here and direct your eyes to this glass. And the vichara is that the mind's ability to maintain your attention on this this cup of water. And those make more sense to me in terms of when a mind's in an altered state of what's called jhana. But that's just, that's just my view. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) And back here. When working with this first concept Uh of emptiness, would it be wise thought to examine what your focus is empty of, or just would it be a better practice to not seek to know what's not there and stay with what is there? Great question. In, in order to get a feeling sense of this, I would spend most of your time just allowing the mind to collect around whatever experience, not to reflect like this very often. But every so often, maybe at the end of a sit, or during a sit, or during a, a walking meditation, every so often, to notice what's not there. And the reason for that is that as you know, I was joking out. Uh, uh, I was joking about the news, but I also wasn't, in the sense of it's another gateway to a kind of pleasure that allows the mind to settle. So a little bit of that, but not so much that you're pulling your mind this place and that place. And you might find a rhythm that might work. So some of it's going to be your own experiment around that. Thank you for that question. Important question. Does that? I just want to make sure. Does that give you at least a way to explore this? I would just occasionally, not not often. I like to do homework, so yeah, that means it's not homework to figure out what's not there. <laughs> right. Yes. Can you talk about pleasure and attachment? Yeah. Um, so, just to keep it very simple. Um, yeah, it's. I want to acknowledge it's really tricky in the sense of the skill of savoring, which is the quality of being with, which is different than I want this. And that, that, that's, that's what I appreciated about the last phrase in the Alison Lunerman poem. I want what I have. I'm content with this. It doesn't have to be something more or I'm worried about what's going to happen next. And it can happen so... It, it happens so frequently around pleasure. Like, like Susie, Sally, and I were—we took a bike ride together, and going downhill was so pleasurable. But then I thought, damn it, I'm gonna have to go uphill. 
I really couldn't savor it completely. I could notice, oh, it's, there's something difficult about just like, this is okay like this. Or wanting more of it. It'd be so nice just to go a little bit faster, you know, or like... So it's those kinds of things, those kind of movements of the mind that I want to just to notice in some, in some kind of manner. And it can be quite subtle. So I, I do want to point out this is a real art and it's not like we're going to get it down in a, a week or a day. So at least open it up a little bit or give something. Yeah. And thank you for the question because that, that's the whole nuance of what we're doing here, which is important. This is why it's so important to also have a sensitivity to the state of mind or the attitude of the mind towards whatever we're paying attention to. The quote um, from Nagarjuna, Hymn to the Ultimate, uh-huh. um, the, the line that says, Nevertheless, whatever you may be in the domain of the true reality, I'm wondering what the translation of that true reality is, just because I yeah. notice in myself this tendency toward um, this is it and this isn't it, and that kind of um, unskillfulness that arises from that kind of um, thought. Yeah, I, I too find that, that language uh, problematic. Like there's some kind of, of of true reality. And we'll get to this in ultimate conventional of how the word true is used by Nagarjuna. So unfortunately, I don't know what the Sanskrit is. I might want to find it out. Um, sometimes I like the, the domain of the ultimate. And this will fit in with our understanding of the ultimate and conventional. So it might be the same word that's translated as, as ultimate. I might see if I can look it up for you and maybe get back to you. But I, I share your question, and I, I got no answer. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so once again, just this reminder of continuity with the willingness, knowing that there can be a lot of also sleepiness and agitation on the first day. Becoming curious about the mind collecting or the mind feeling scattered and noticing what's there and what's not there, this, this, this experience of, of emptying. And uh, one announcement, if I can find it. Pot washers. The, uh, the pot washers that I think are going to be working during this next walking meditation. Uh, your yogi job might take longer than the walking meditation, so feel free to enter in during the next sitting meditation. That, that, that That's okay to do if you need to come late to the next sitting meditation. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.